0: In our study of Second Peter, we come to the third and final chapter of his letter. And I would remind you of an outline that I gave when we began our study, that the first chapter deals on the nature of the Christian life, the second chapter on the, a warning against false teachers, and now here in chapter 3, the certainty of Christ's return. I would also remind you that chapter divisions are man-made, and they are artificial. That is to say, Peter did not write three chapters. He wrote... This letter, a single letter, again, to remind you, the New Testament was divided into chapters in the year 1205 by Robert Langdon. um, And verse divisions were done later. It's about 1565 that we have the Bible as we know it now with the chapter and verse divisions. And this is helpful. I mean, I can say to you, let's turn to 2 Peter chapter 3, and you know what I'm talking about. But we have to be careful because oftentimes, because these divisions are arbitrary, uh, oftentimes uh, a train of thought is broken up and it actually carries over to the next chapter. uh, And we might lose sight of that if we you know, strictly go by the chapter divisions. Having said that, there can be no doubt that verse number one of chapter three marks a new passage. It marks a change, a new section. If you will, look at the last verse of chapter two. Of them the Proverbs are true, a dog returns to its vomit, and a sow that is washed goes back to her wallowing in the mud. Now look at verse number one of chapter three. Dear friends, this is my second letter to you. There can be little, I mean, this is certainly jarring and jolting. um, But as people are supposed to know, a new paragraph begins a new thought. Peter is beginning a new thought. But what is the connection between chapter three and what comes before it? I I will tell you, there are some scholars who think that chapter three is a separate book all by itself, um, which is interesting, but not true. Uh, um, What is the connection between chapter three and what comes before it? Let's look, first of all, at the first two verses here of chapter three. Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I've written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. As we begin to look at chapter 3, there are four connections that I want you to see between it and what comes before. First of all, the connection with chapter 2. The obvious one is the word command. Um, There's a strong contrast. In chapter 2, we are told about the false teachers who turned their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. On the other hand, Peter is writing to believers, and he wants them to recall the word spoken and the command given. I think this points out the the contrast between dogs, pigs, sows, and dear friends, on the other hand. By the way, uh, some translations have beloved instead of dear friends. It comes from the word agapetoi, which is from agape. It appears four times in this last chapter. Um, I think that Peter is really trying to make a case that these believers who have been infected by these false teachers, he is trying to call them back to a relationship with God, deeper love for God and an alienation from these false teachers. It is clear that Peter is deeply offended by these false teachers. If you have any doubt, the last verse of chapter two, I think, makes that clear. But it is also clear that there is a deep bond, and he sees this, and he feels this, between himself and those to whom he is writing. Perhaps they need that reassurance after what he just wrote at the end of chapter 2. If you were to summarize chapter 2, you would say it is the power of God to judge and save. Chapter 3, the theme is the power of God to return. In both cases, it is despite appearances to the contrary. Because in chapter 2, the problem is, as a Christian, I'm thinking this is counterintuitive. Why does God let false teachers come into his church? It seems that God can do anything he wants. Why doesn't he get rid of these people? And yet we're told, well, he will one day judge them. In chapter 3, the question is, Jesus is coming back, but why is it taking so long? Appearances seem to indicate that maybe, in fact, he is not returning but we will see in chapter three he absolutely is. What is the connection between chapter three and chapter one? Um, the connection is even stronger than it is with chapter two. You might even see chapter two as a parenthetical section, because at the end of chapter two, uh, chapter one he writes of the apostles and the prophets, and he does in chapter three. And in fact. He will also deal with the issue of memory and being reminded. Look, if you would, in chapter 1, verses 16 to 21. We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my son, whom I love, with him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. And we have the word of the prophets made more certain, and you would do well to pay attention to it, as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. But prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit." Rather extended passage in which Peter is making the case that what we have in Scripture comes from the prophets and the apostles. It is authoritative. It comes from God. And then here in verse number one of chapter three, we have sort of a summary of that. I want our chapter three, verse two. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. So it is as though he gives us an extended version at the end of chapter one. And then as he begins chapter three, he sort of reminds us, yes, prophets, apostles. Please keep that in mind. The second thing is a matter of memory. Again, go back to chapter one. If you look at verses 12 through 15. So I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body, because I know that I will soon put it aside as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. A strong emphasis on memory. And then we go to chapter 3 again, verse number 1. Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I have written both of them as reminders. And then verse number 2, I want you to recall the words spoken and the command given. You'll notice that in both cases, in chapter 1, Peter deals with these at length. And here he briefly mentions them again in chapter 3. He's already established what he means. He's simply wanting to remind his readers of what he has said. Peter is concerned that the believers who read this letter, he's concerned that they might be led astray from the teachings of the prophets and the apostles by these false teachers. So he writes this letter to them. That's the second connection. What is the connection with the previous letter? Because, again, this is his second letter to them, and I've argued that, in fact, this is the second letter. There's some who say it's actually the third, that there's one sort of in between there. But we have 1 Peter and we have 2 Peter. He's writing to the same group of people. This is an assumption we have to make because he doesn't tell us this. It's And it's really quite unusual. You may remember from chapter 1, that typically in ancient letters, they began with the author who is writing, the people or persons to whom he is writing, and then a greeting of some sort with a word of thanksgiving. We find this in First Peter. We do not find this in Second Peter. I'm convinced that the letters go to the same people, and therefore Peter does not repeat himself. The first letter deals with the problem that believers are facing from outside the church. That is persecution. And again, this is counterintuitive. We are the people of God. We are the church. Why are we suffering? We shouldn't be suffering. And Peter makes a very strong case that this has been the pattern in the lives of God's people in the Old Testament, and we see it supremely in Jesus, that the righteous do suffer. And so he writes to encourage them that there will be problems from outside the church. The second letter deals with problems from within the church. As I've mentioned before, Francis Schaeffer used to say that if you imagine false teaching or danger in the church as a fire-breathing dragon and you're backing up away from it, you need to be careful because right behind you is another fire-breathing dragon that oftentimes as we back away or we focus on one particular problem, we may in fact lose sight of one behind us. We may become so concerned with persecution outside the church that we may, in fact, neglect to understand that there is a, there could be a problem within the church. False teachers might come in. And again, this is counterintuitive. We are God's people. How can there be false people in God's among God's people? Well, look in the Gospels and look at the parable of the wheat and the weeds. That, in fact, in every church among God's people, like it or not, There are those who are believers, and there are those who are not believers. It is worth noting that in both letters, the anchor, I think, that people are to hold to is that Jesus is coming back. In the first letter, perhaps not as clearly as one might want, but he talks about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, as well as his return. In 1 Peter 4, three, But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed, when Jesus comes back. In 2 Peter, the chapter we're going to look at, the issue is judgment. Yes, you have false teachers. They are doing incredible damage in the church. But one day, Jesus will return and there will be judgment. And the judgment is not merely in terms of condemnation. We've seen this. Because you will see later in chapter 3, Peter says, What kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives. So those are three connections, with chapter 2, with chapter 1 in the previous letter. But let's tie all of these together. In Peter's writings, he is concerned that right belief lead to right behavior. It is his intent, if you look in verse number one, that they have wholesome thinking. By the way, he uses a similar phraseology, it's not in English, but in Greek, in chapter one of First Peter, when he talks about preparing your mind for action. But we need to understand something, that the Christian faith is not merely a matter of thinking, of theology or philosophy. It is that, but we have to ask ourselves, does our behavior matter? Is our behavior important at all? Living when and where we do, it is very tempting to reduce the Christian faith to a series of propositions of things that we believe, which may or may not change the way that you live. This, in fact, is what the false teachers are doing, we see in chapter 2. And that is why in chapter 2, Peter does not critique their theology. He does not give an apologetic defense of the gospel, that these are the true things, these are the false things. He talks about their behavior. Now, it would be rather strange if in chapter 2, after talking about the behavior of false teachers, as he comes back to the believers, he would say nothing about their behavior. Of course he will say something about their behavior. I mentioned a bit ago about the connection between chapters 2 and 3, the word command. The force behind a command is authority, the authority of one who is giving the command. This is God, as Peter sees it, through the prophets and the apostles. This is a bit of review, but to remind you that in chapter 1, as Peter prepares to make a defense against the false teachers, he brings up two sets of witnesses, the prophets and the apostles. This is very biblical. This is very Old Testament. Um, The principle in Mosaic law is if you have one eyewitness to a crime, that is not sufficient to convict. You must have two eyewitnesses. And by the way, Those who are witnesses are those who participate in the execution of the punishment on the person who committed the crime. So if you're going to accuse somebody of murder, you will be the first person to throw a stone as they are stoned to death. In Deuteronomy 19, and we talked about this in chapter 1, one witness is not enough to convict a man accused of a crime or offense he may have committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Jesus accepts this principle when it comes to church discipline in Matthew 18. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. If he listens, you have won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And then we find this in Paul as well. As he writes in 2 Corinthians 13, this will be my third visit to you. Every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. In other words, what I told you the first visit, I told you the second visit, and I'm going to tell you the same thing my third visit, this establishes the veracity the truthfulness of what he is saying. As Peter speaks of the truthfulness of the Christian faith, he calls on the two sets of witnesses, one from the Old Covenant, the prophets, one from the New Covenant, that is the apostles. But if you will look at what we're looking at today in chapter 3, Peter does something different, something new, in contrast to chapter 1. He refers to the prophets and apostles as the holy prophets and your apostles. The phrase holy prophets is used by Peter in Acts chapter 3. Speaking of Jesus, he will remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything, as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. In using holy to describe the prophets, Peter does at least three things. First of all, to point to the reality that they were set apart by God. God, who is holy, set them apart to be holy. Secondly, what they had to say was important. They are holy prophets. And thirdly, to refuse to listen to them or to obey what they have to say is to turn your back on the sacred command. This is no small thing. There may be a fourth reason he does this. Holy prophets, false teachers, whose behavior, as we saw in chapter 2, is disgusting. It is sinful. It is revolting. As he puts it, they contaminate everything they touch. On the other hand, you have the holy prophets. But then he says, you're apostles, which seems a bit odd. I mean, Peter, aren't you an apostle? I mean... Why don't you say the apostles or we apostles? I mean why your apostles? It may be, and I'm only guessing here, that Peter is trying to impress on his readers that the apostles are the ones with authority in the church. And he is calling on them to say, Listen, you need to go back to your apostles and you need to abandon these false teachers. I think that the main point Peter's trying to make is that the false teachers reject authority, the authority of holy prophets and of the apostles? Um, the holy prophets, we, through them, we have the words spoken in the past, and your apostles, the command given by our Lord and Savior. What we find about these false teachers is that they question the words spoken in the past, and we will see, the Lord willing, next week. As Peter writes about creation, about the flood and coming judgment, all of them are based on the same word. And then they deny the reality of God's promise. And Peter will tell us later on, verses 8 to 13, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. It may seem slow to us, but in fact, God keeps his promises And the false teachers denied the authority of Scripture. And what almost seems to be sort of a throwaway thing near the end of a letter, we've seen this before, when you get near the end of an epistle, you need to pay attention. They're not just sort of throwing things in before they wrap it up. He makes a statement about Paul. Um, A fascinating statement, but I think the most important thing is he says that Paul's writings are Scripture. Holy prophets, your apostles, the words that they speak, you need to listen to. And then as he ends this letter in verses 17 and 18, he will balance between what we believe and how we behave. Let's look at verses 3 through 7, the words spoken in the past. Listen as I read. First of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come scoffing and following their own evil desires they will say, where is this coming he promised? Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men." One of the key questions when one reads the New Testament is, was Jesus wrong about the second coming? Were the apostles wrong about the second coming? Did they all think it was going to happen in five years, ten years, twenty years, within the generation? If they did, doesn't this make them out to be fools at best and liars at worst? Because, in fact, Jesus has not yet returned. Does this invalidate everything that they have to say about anything? Because they say Jesus is coming back soon, and here we are almost 20 centuries later, and it still hasn't happened. If this was a question at the second half of the first century, how much more in our time all these centuries later? I think the false teachers have made this one of their issues. Aren't you all a little embarrassed? Isn't Peter embarrassed? Jesus hasn't come back yet. They keep saying he's coming back. Where is this coming that he promised? Verse 3, Peter tells us several things. First of all, scoffers will come. He begins by making an important assertion. There will be scoffers. Several things to note. He says... First of all, and if, if you're my students in university, if I say first, you're always expecting a second and a third or whatever. Um, so we're looking for a second, but there, in fact, is nothing. This would better be translated above all. We see this phrase in the first chapter. What Peter is saying is really important. So above all, in the last days, there will be scoffing scoffers. Whenever we hear the phrase, in the last days, we tend to think of the end of time, that if time is this continuum, that the last days are just the little last bit of the the timeline there, and then Jesus will return. But this is not how it is used in the New Testament. What is called for in the New Testament is a radical new way of looking at life. It is marked by two events. The incarnation in which Jesus comes into the world and the return of Jesus at the end of time. It is the beginning. It is the ending. Therefore, he is the Alpha and he is the Omega. We live in between this time and this time period between the two is referred to consistently in the New Testament as the last days. Let me read to you several passages. We'll begin with Peter in Acts chapter 2 the day of Pentecost. He's quoting from Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. Peter is seeking to explain what is happening that day, the day of Pentecost, by quoting Joel, who refers to the last days. That means to say that the day of Pentecost is within the time frame known as the last days. Hebrews chapter 1. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. The coming of Jesus marks the beginning of the last portion of human history. The last days from James, chapter five, listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. That is right now in your lives. You have done this wicked thing. We saw this in 1 Peter chapter 1. He, that is Jesus, was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. So again, either the the apostles are mistaken, or we have misunderstood what they have to say. We need to understand that we live in the period between when Jesus first came into the world, and when he will the second time come in between that is the last days. In this period that we know as the last days, there will be people who will come and mock, scoffers who will scoff. Now, again, if you look at verse number three, it might seem that Peter is looking to the future, that he's not speaking of the people that he's speaking of here. But if you look at verse number five, they forget present tense. Okay? They're active in Peter's day. That's why he's writing this letter. They follow their own desires. Here we come to see something very important, and particularly for Chapter 2. They're scoffing when they mock and say, Jesus is not coming back. This is not a theological issue. This is not a philosophic issue. We might think that because Second Coming, doctrine, theology, that's eschatology, all those things. But Peter tells us it's a moral matter. They are following their own evil desires. Because, in fact, if Jesus is not coming back, then it doesn't matter what I do. I can do whatever I want. There is no final judgment. Yeah. I keep hearing about the second coming. It hasn't happened. It's not a philosophic issue for them. It is a moral issue. They get to do what they want. So, verse number four, their question is, Where is this coming he promised? Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. As Peter sees it, they pose the question, where is this coming? And then they give the reason for the question. He will deal with the reason first and then answer their question later on. So he answers the question, where is this coming he promised in verses 8, 9, and 10. But first of all, the reason they give for asking this question to review just a bit from chapter one in verse 16, we did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. I mentioned this in chapter one, I will do it again now to reinforce it. One of the keys to denying the second coming of Jesus, is to deny, in fact, the first coming of Jesus. Now, yes, there was a man named Jesus in Nazareth, and maybe he said good things and and did good things, but he was not the Son of God. He is not the Messiah. And if you can deny the first thing, then the second one one—it's much easier to get rid of. And that's why Peter says, listen, we didn't make this up. We're not following fairy tales when we told you about the coming first time of Jesus with power, that Jesus came into the world, the Incarnation. We didn't make that up, and we're also not making up that he will, in fact, return. The word that Peter uses is familiar to many people, parousia. Those who are familiar with the New Testament may know this word. And associate it with the second coming. But parousia, coming, has, it's used in two different ways. First of all, the coming of a hidden divinity who makes his presence felt by a divine revelation of his power. This is the incarnation. God came in the flesh. Paul says it's a great mystery. This is the first coming. The second is the official term for the visit of a person of high rank, especially kings and emperors. This is the second way we use it. Jesus will, in fact, come back to this planet. In chapter 1, he speaks of the first. Here in chapter 3, it is the second. This is the coming that he promised that the scoffers scoff at. As I mentioned, this is one of the big questions in the New Testament. Paul writes about it in 1 Corinthians 15, and he does in uh, 1 Thessalonians 2, 3, and 4. It's a a really big problem because some of the Thessalonians said, Jesus is coming back. Quit your job. Just wait until he gets here. Well, if you quit your job and you don't have any food, then you mooch off of other people. And so the people who keep working basically have to feed those who stop working. And, And Paul says, no, no, no. If you don't work, you don't eat. When Jesus is coming, we don't know. Um, But Paul was not confused, and neither should we be. The notion that God doesn't keep his promise, or he does so in a very late way, that he doesn't do it on time, is not a New Testament issue. We find it in the Old Testament as well. In Jeremiah 17, They keep saying to me, Jeremiah says, Where is the word of the Lord? Let it now be fulfilled. You keep making these prophecies, where are they? why haven 't they been fulfilled in Ezekiel chapter twelve? God is speaking to Ezekiel, Son of man, what is this proverb you have in the land of Israel? The day goes by, the days go by, and every vision comes to nothing. Got all these prophecies? Nothing's happening. This is not just a New Testament issue. We find it in the Old Testament as well well. The scoffers say, listen, nothing has changed. Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. Nothing's changed. We don't believe this prophecy will be fulfilled. For them, nothing has changed. Not even the coming of Jesus into the world has changed human history. Peter will answer that. He'll give three biblical examples. He will do so chronologically as he did in chapter 2 in uh, answering the false teachers. God has spoken. He created the world. God spoke, and the world was flooded and destroyed. And by the same word, God will one day speak again, and there will be judgment. The Lord willing, we will look at this next Sunday. Verses 5, 6, and 7, the creation, the flood, and the final judgment. As God's people, our perspective on all things, on life, on everything, is to be shaped by the reality that Jesus came into the world and that Jesus will one day return. That we live in the last days, the last portion of human history. And his coming into the world has changed everything and one day he will come and time as we know it will cease and there will be a new heaven and a new earth." I think in many ways we're more like the false teachers than we might care to admit. That we think that things just go on and on and on and on. And 20 centuries later we may have lost hope or we may just think it's not going to happen. Jesus will return. Let me just say one thing uh, before I close of a personal nature. Growing up in the tradition that I did, we heard many sermons about the second coming. But they were never pleasant, at least to me. Um, the, The return of Jesus was something I came to fear and not look forward to. I think it's the fear of the unknown. We don't know what it's going to be like. And many preachers will tell you what it's going to be like, but that's their opinion, and usually they just try to scare you uh, into doing what they want you to do. I don't know what the Second Coming is going to be like, and I don't know when is it going to happen, but I do know that Jesus came into the world, and it marked the beginning of this time we know as the last days, and that one day he will return. I don't know when that's going to be. I don't need to know. What I need to do is have my perspective correct, living between these two parousias, these two comings of Jesus. I am to be obedient. I am to listen to the command, to the prophets, the holy prophets, and the apostles, and live a godly life. And we will see this, the Lord willing, when we come back. Let's pray together. Our Father, we freely confess that we are sinners, and as sinners we tend to be self-centered. We try to provide our own uh, horizons. We try to provide our own frame of reference. Even as your people, as your children, we forget where we live, that we live between the incarnation and the return of your son. And this has changed everything. And it should change the way that we think and the way that we live, the way that we act. We thank you for the coming of your son, coming in power as Peter testified. We thank you that he has given his life and that he has given us the gift of faith, the same faith that he gave to the apostles, and that by your grace we are partakers of the divine nature. And yet we find ourselves so easily swayed. I thank you for Peter's letter, how he teaches, how he corrects, how he warns. May we take it to heart. I thank you that we could gather on this warm day, to worship you. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. May we be lights in a world of darkness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.